That was great. I love it. <clears throat> okay, so here we are in the last section of uh, Truth, Love, and Obedience. Um, for those that didn't catch the first three, they are posted on the website, so I'm told. So if you have trouble sleeping some night, go ahead and pull them down. There is a study guide. If you still can't get to sleep, you can work on the study guide. But here we are. We're starting in on the fourth part of uh, truth, love, and obedience, the first part being an introduction. <clears throat> and uh, essentially, there's our, you know, just to rehash here, they're imperatives for action for us. These are attributes of God himself, truth, love, and obedience that you find in the scriptures. Um, you find them typically paired together. And these are attributes of God himself that, that we, we strive to um, find ourselves like. We strive to, to fill ourselves with the Holy Spirit to become like him in these things. And it has to do with our effectiveness. It has to do with being salt and light on the earth and, and actually living out what God invests in us and his Holy Spirit working through us. And if we aren't showing the evidence of truth, love, and obedience, if we're deluded diluted, then we need to acknowledge that. Um, we need to not ignore our blind spots, the things that we can't see or don't see, but even more so the things that we just don't want to see about ourselves. We have to let God reveal those things to us and ask him, say, test me, Father, know my anxious thoughts, see if there's any offensive way in me, and uh, lead me in the way everlasting. And so today we're going to go um, further. We looked at truth. We've talked about love. We talked about the four kinds of love um, that you typically find in the New Testament. Um, but today we're going to go into obedience. And it's, it's been a struggling week for me to get into this. It's a, if you thought truth and love were hard, <laughs> wow, just wait. Get your seatbelts on. Um, obedience is, is a difficult thing for the believer. It's a, it's a challenge. It's not something that we come by naturally. Because before we were saved, we were slaves to disobedience and unrighteousness. Um, we just did what seemed right to us. And although we were lost and we struggled and we flailed around, we probably felt pretty comfortable in that. But here we have a decision to make because our flesh still wants us to obey what we used to do. And yet here we're called by our Father and equipped to move on with His will. So we have to choose differently. We have to think differently. And the way that God works, he initiates. You've seen that. We've looked at it in the study about truth and the study about love. And when he initiates, that's our pattern and where to respond to him. And he chooses. And because we are created like him in his likeness, he also gave us the right to choose. He gave us the freedom to choose. We call it uh, free moral agency for the theologians out there. But that's part of this thing, and obedience, that makes it difficult. Is we, have the, we have the ability to choose. And not only that, we have the ability how we, want to, how we want to obey. It's not just about obeying or not, but it's also how much and in what way and how willing are we. And so you'll see today that obedience is a decision, and it's a challenge. <clears throat> it's a challenge. So I'm going to pray before we start. <clears throat> Father, we just ask that you would have your way um, with us in this time. We so appreciate being able to gather together and to worship you, um, both in song and in fellowship, but also in the word. And we lift up this time to you, and we ask you to, 
to have full sway over this message, to penetrate our hearts, to, to fill us with the desire to choose well. And we just thank you that you're going to do this work through us and for us and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, once again, we're going to flip open your Bible. You're going to go to Philippians 2, right at the very beginning of Philippians 2. And you can leave your finger in there again because we'll, we'll round it up at the end and land on it. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 16, or at least the first part of verse 16. And here's Paul talking to the church at Philippi, which is actually on the, on the Greek coast there. And he says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness or compassion, then make my joy complete, being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your, relations, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him that name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And then you'll shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. How true those words are, you know, penned before the middle of the 60s AD, he was writing to the church at Philippi, the book of joy, we call it. But he had no idea what was coming. Some of you know that Jerusalem was sacked by the Romans in 70 AD. The temple was raised, absolutely flattened. The gold was melted out of the temple by fires and stolen. And beyond that, Jews were killed. Hundreds of thousands of Jews were killed in that rebellion. Following that, there was even more rebellion. I talked to you about the Bar Kokhba rebellion in 130. And Christians were rounded up with the Jews because they were all part of the same sect, according to the Romans. So when the rebellion happened, millions of people were killed in Judea and the surrounding regions just for believing in the one God. So Paul's writing to the church and encouraging them and exhorting them, and he has no idea what he's really saying because they don't know what's coming on them. But I want to tell you that that was just the beginning of persecution. So flash forward to Carthage. Carthage is on the north coast of Africa. It's in Tunisia now. It's on the tip there. Ancient enemy of Rome was conquered in 250 B.C. by Rome. 
It's part of a large expansion of the Roman Empire at that time. But in Carthage in 247 AD, there was a plague that struck the Roman Empire, starting in North Africa. It was pretty horrific. I, I think COVID's bad, but I think this would be worse. Um, symptoms were diarrhea, vomiting, swelling extremities, hemorrhagic conjunctivitis. Your eyes would bleed. Your mouth would bleed. You had partial paralysis. And nobody knew how to stop it. Nobody knew what to do. Some people today say that they think it was Ebola virus, and it could be. Um, it would have survived at that time. It would have lasted. But that plague lasted in Rome for 20 years. Yeah, the, the, rate, of, the rate of suffering was unbelievable. So 90% mortality rate. So if you got the disease, most likely you're going to die. For those that did survive, it was one out of three in the empire were struck. And so for those that did survive, you can imagine the suffering that went with that. Not just the loss of family members and friends and all this, but what about food production? What about law? What about transportation? Everything was affected, one out of three. So there was a declining, there was a decline in every sector of the economy, um, not to mention the, the military. At its peak, it's estimated that 5,000 were dying per day in Rome when it finally reached Rome. Very congested little dirty city at the time. So at that time in North Africa, maybe you've heard of him, <clears throat> there's a bishop, a Christian bishop named Cyprian. His real name was Thasius Cecilius Cyprianus, so that's why they called him Cyprian. <laughs> he was a prominent attorney before he came to Christ in middle age. He was from a wealthy family. He was well-educated. Keep in mind, Carthage was actually a very sophisticated society. They were the ones that invented plumbing that the Romans stole and used for themselves. They were the ones that invented concrete, by the way. Carthage did. They were the ones that invented deep water ports that would self-clean so that silt wouldn't accumulate in them. They were a maritime empire at the time, uh, at the peak of their empire in about 300 B.C. And so he was from a long line of distinguished intellectuals, Cyprian was. But he gave up his wealth and his position as a prominent attorney to serve the church when he was saved by a servant. So this plague was so horrific and the suffering of those patients was so extreme and Cyprian commented, it just appeared that the world was at its end as far as he could see. And it was at that time that he and others developed the first hospitals. There was nothing like it before this. Never before was there organized health care to care for anyone who had disease. It was always up to traveling physicians. You can imagine why they were traveling physicians, because they were trying to escape their last lawsuit. Right? That's no joke. They're always, they're always leaving a trail of bodies, and so they had to keep moving. But this was the first time ever that this happened. I'm going to quote a book by Gary Ferngren called Medicine and Healthcare in Early Christianity. He says, The hospital was, in origin and conception, a distinctively Christian institution rooted in Christian concepts of charity and philanthropy. There were no pre-Christian institutions in the ancient world that served the purpose that Christian hospitals were created to serve. None of the provisions for healthcare in classical times resembled hospitals. In 312, a little later on, just jumping ahead, there was another plague, very similar, 
<clears throat> very costly, very deadly. But by that time, Christians were so numerous in every major city that the efforts at hospitalization and caring for the sick were much more advanced. So it started in Carthage in 250 or so, but it spread to the rest of the Roman Empire within 60 years. Eusebius, an early church father and eyewitness, reported that Christians rounded up the huge numbers who had been reduced to scarecrows all over the city and distributed loaves to all of them. Gary Ferngren continues, the only care of the sick and dying during the epidemic of 312 was provided by the Christian churches. He said, no charitable care of any kind, public or private, existed apart from the Christian care because there was no religious, philosophical, or social basis for it. In fact, no one cared about the sick and dying. That was just the cost of pursuing the pagan gods. Sometimes you were blessed with crops. Sometimes you weren't. Sometimes you had a great family life, and sometimes they all tried to kill you. Sometimes you were hissed, you were sick. Sometimes you weren't. But the, to the Christians, it was different. And what made this really, for Cyprian, really difficult was in order to practice care for the sick and dying, he was asking people, followers of Jesus Christ, to care for the ones that were actually persecuting him. These were the same mobs of people who are trying to lynch Christians and torture them and take their stuff. Because at the time, 247, is about the seventh, the seventh uh, persecution by Rome of the church. It was a capital crime and it was punished severely during this plague. And why was that? It's because the pagan Romans, and some of them weren't Romans, some of them were slaves that were pagans, they saw this onslaught. They saw the decline in agriculture. They saw people sick and dying. And they saw these forces marching into Gaul and marching into Mesopotamia unopposed by Roman armies because there was no Roman army to face them. And they blamed the atheists. They blamed the Christians for this because they weren't worshiping the gods. In 249, there was a huge uprising in Alexandria. Again, Cyprian is right next door to this. Huge uprising in Alexandria led by a pagan priest who was disgusted by the lack of care and attention being, being paid to the temples of these pagan gods. And that was the tipping point for this, this particular persecution. So what is most amazing about this development is not just the charity of the Christians to ease suffering, but that they were willing to do it to people who are trying to kill them, people who were, on the one hand, disgusted with them and thought them refuse, but now were receiving care, the limited care that was available. So it's been said that the early lives of Christians consisted of persecution above ground and prayer below ground, because it, that's what they faced at every turn. And that was only the beginning or, or the middle part of a long series of persecutions. So at the risk of boring you with history, you're all stuck here. You can't go anywhere, so I'm going to bore you with history. I want to go over just a few highlights of what is known as the common, the ten common persecutions of the Christians from the time of Paul, essentially, from the time of the growth of the church in Judea. The first persecution was an ad hoc one by Nero. You probably heard about it. When Rome burned, he blamed the Christians. And it was successful. Um, blaming Christians was fruitful for him. He got, garnered a lot of support from that, actually. 
he was a little crazy, um, probably a little inbred, and as a result, picking someone to blame worked out for him. He managed to stay in power until 81, when Domitian took over. But in 81 AD, it became official. Timothy, Paul's beloved Timothy, he was clubbed to death. Dionysus, Nicodemus, they were beheaded. They're all mentioned in the Bible. All the Jews in Rome were ordered killed under Domitian in 82. And you remember that John, the disciple that Jesus loved, they arranged to have him boiled in oil. It's a fact. It's in the Roman history books. They went to boil him in oil, and it didn't work. <laughs> they dipped him, and he came out just as pink as he went in. And so they exiled him to Patmos, afraid that he would become a martyr or stir some kind of miraculous rebellion. There was an official senatorial decree at that time. No Christian once brought before the tribunal should be exempted from punishment without renouncing his religion. So if you were brought up on any charge, traffic ticket, whatever, your first charge was, so you're going to renounce Christianity? Okay, you're getting punished. Didn't matter if the crime was brought up or not. The fact you were a Christian was the crime. Moving on to 108 under Trajan, following with Adrian. You might have heard of a guy named Pliny II. He was a philosopher and a statesman in Rome. He's very famous. Seeing the lamentable slaughter of Christians and moved with pity, he wrote to Trajan, certifying to him that there were many thousands of them daily put to death, of which none did anything contrary to the Roman laws worthy of persecution. The whole account they gave of their crime or error, whichever it was to be called, amounted only to this, that they were accustomed that on a stated day to meet before daylight, to repeat together a set form of prayer to Christ as a God, and to bind themselves by an obligation not to indeed commit wickedness, but on the contrary, never to commit theft, robbery, adulterer, never to falsify their word, and never to defraud any man. After which it was their custom to separate and reassemble to partake in a common form of harmless meal. It had no effect on Trajan or Adrian. Ignatius was condemned, but refused to allow his followers to free him. He was the bishop of Antioch after Peter. And when they had sentenced him to be thrown to wild beasts, it was such the burning desire he had to suffer for Christ that he said when he heard the lions roaring, I am the wheat of Christ. I'm going to be ground with the teeth of wild beasts that I may be found purebred. Goes on, Marcus Aurelius in 162. Polycarp also, they attempted to burn him. They added wood, they added wood, they kept adding wood but the fire didn't touch him. They had to spear him because he was untouched by the flames. And under Severus in AD 192, Tertullian was quoted. Tertullian's one of the church fathers, very famous. If all the Christians left Roman territory, Rome would cease to exist, he said. Rome would cease to exist if the Christians left, but they stayed. That's how popular Christianity became under this persecution. I'll go on. Maximus, AD 235. Numberless Christians were slain without trial and buried in heaps, 50 or 60 being cast into a pit together without the least decency. Under Decius in 249, this is about that time when I was saying Cyprian was bishop in Carthage. 
There was that uprising in Alexandria, temples forsaken in disrepair, churches flourishing. Origen, another one of the church fathers, was tortured, attempting to kill him. They were unsuccessful. And Decius died while he was on the rack. So they released him, and he lived for another five years, despite his disfigurement, to continue encouraging the church, supporting the church, encouraging the faithful, restoring the ones who had denied the faith. Think about that picture. What about those that did give in? How do you treat them? And with that plague that broke out in Carthage, it was, as usual, laid to the charge of the Christians. And Valerian in AD 257, at that point, Valerian incensed at Christianity that they would not pinch incense and drop it into an altar for him as God. He ordered all Christians in Rome killed. I don't know if they actually completed that because Rome at that point was at least 50% Christian, most of them slaves. Stephen, the bishop of Toulouse, what we call France now, was Gaul, was tortured and killed. Lawrence, a gentle and popular elder in Rome who was in charge of the church's finances in Rome, was caught. And Valerian was hopeful he could steal the goods and he could get names. He could get people to confess. So he said, Lawrence, I charge you, you must tell me where this stuff is. Lawrence said, give me three days, I'll get back to you. Three days later, in the amphitheater, this is what he said. All these Christians here, all these people you see huddled masses, that is the treasure of Christ. Christ is in them, the poor, the sick, the meek. And at that, Valerian cursed, swore. He was mad with anger, gnashed his teeth, and they did everything they could to torture this man. And yet, he never cried. He never cried out once. Aurelian Tacitus in 274. This one I do want you to remember. There was a legion, and a legion is about 6,000 men. It's said in a couple of history books that it was 6,666 men. I'm not sure that's important, but it was a lot of guys, 6,700 people. They were arranged, they were actually recruited, like most Roman legions, they were a regional command, and they were from Thebes in Egypt, further up the Nile, further south, near Luxor. 6,700 men commanded by three men who are all Christians, all professing Christians. And at that time, they marched under orders from Caesar. They marched all the way up to Gaul to put down a, a rebellion in Burgundy. And when they arrived, the forces that were there with Caesar, with Aurelian, demanded that they offer sacrifice to the altar of Caesar and then also take an oath to kill all the Christians in Gaul. And to a man, all 6,700 refused. They would not. So Aurelian had him stand in ranks. Every 10th man stepped forward, and he was slain. They still refused. He had them decimated again. They stood in ranks. Every 10th man stepped forward, and they were killed. They still refused. He pleaded with them, just a pinch. That's all you have to do. They refused. And so the remaining forces there slaughtered the rest of the 6,700 men in France. And the attack never went forward. The last one is Diocletian. That was perhaps the most severe ever. Entire towns that were Christian. Keep in mind, the Roman Empire was so thoroughly infested with Christians, there was no way to stamp it out. The more the suffering, the greater the faith. Entire towns 
were razed to the ground and all the inhabitants slaughtered. Keep in mind of that plague that happened in 312 right behind this. The imperial palace was burned down and blamed on Christians who were legally hunted in every quadrant of the Roman Empire. So there was the history lesson you never wanted to have about how bad it was to be a Christian during the great persecutions under the Roman church. But with the rise of Constantine in 313, it was actually 308 when he began moving forward against Rome, he marched against Rome with the vision of the cross on his shields. He had supposedly received, received a vision from God that, to march under this symbol to defeat Rome. His mother was a devout Christian. He, not so much. No one's really sure if he was a believer or not. He was never baptized till he was on his deathbed. But he made Christianity, when he overcame impossible odds to take Rome, he overcame odds that he never should have. When he, when he actually got there, he declared Christianity was no longer religio illicita. It was something that everybody could practice. He did not make it the official religion, as some people say, but he made it possible to believe, and thus it became very popular. And as we know, with that popularity came um, all kinds of heresy and a filtering out of the church. But you can see that, that that persecution actually caused the church to flourish. It caused it to grow. It was Constantine that sponsored the first council of Nicaea where the deity of Christ was formally accepted and Arianism, that Gnostic heresy where Jesus the man and Jesus the spirit were totally separate, that was defeated at that point. The trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit was established at the council of Nicaea. And the authority of the church bishops to readmit lapsed Christians was also established at the Council of Nicaea. These things are really important for the foundation of the church, obviously. And at that council, which lasted 18 months, many of the attendees, if not most of them, bore the marks of the persecution of Diocletian. Some say they were so disfigured it was hard to look on them. Eyes missing, faces disfigured, missing limbs, limbs contorted and swollen. And these were the men, they were all men, but these were the men and the women who, were, who had lived through the greatest persecutions only to, to see the church grow and flourish and spring up. And of that, what is the key attribute that you would say inhabited those Christians? What was it that made them stick through this? What made them hang on? And it was obedience. It was strictly obedience. And that's what we're looking at today is obedience. Why did it not extinguish through secular, popular, demonic, rabid suffering? Many of these people, many of these men and women were poor, uneducated, illiterate, never led anything in their lives, and yet they were church leaders. How did that happen? Well, obedience to the early church is a logical, intentional obligation. That is something we all need to accept. Obedience for us is not just something we lightly consider like, yeah, that's the third part of love, truth, and obedience. It's something we need to actually own because it's an intentional act on our part. Love comes from God. The truth, that biblical worldview, that comes from God. But God lays at our feet the question about whom we're going to serve. We're free from sin, but who are we going to serve? So 
It's a rational thing. In Romans 6, many of you know this, Paul says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And later he says, But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness. There's two components there. Reckon yourselves dead to sin is about, it's an accounting term. It's just a flat out, this is the math. You were this, now you're that. You need to reckon that you're no longer alive to that sin that's bugging you right now. And when he says, present your members of righteousness to God, he's saying it's rational. It's a logical thing. You've been paid for, so show up for work. He continues on in verse 16, 18, and 20. When you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you're slaves to the one you obey. Logical, rational. So now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. It's logical. It's rational. But more than that, when you look at who we are in Christ, this adds a new flavor to it. Because we're more than just servants. We're more than just slaves to Jesus Christ. In John 1.12, Yet to all that did receive him, to those that believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The right to become children of God. The right to become children of God is a legal term. It means that you are an adopted child. That's the terminology that's used there in Greek. It's not, he patted you on the head and said, you're an honorary Thompson child, which I've done to many of my son's friends, much to their chagrin. The seventh Thompson child, they all think they're number seven in the Thompson order. No, this is a legal right. This is an official adoption. He gave the right to become children of God. In John 15, he says, Jesus says, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I made known to you. It's more than just a slave relationship. I trust you. I gave you this. Now, let's think about what the Lord wants to do with you. It's implied that when you say you're a child of God in a Jewish context, you are a son of God, that means that you own part of that business. If someone says they're the son of Pete in a Jewish idiom, that means that he has the inheritance. He runs the business. He knows the master's business. And when you look at 1 John 3, 1, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Again, Understanding rationally, but accepting that we're more than just a servant. And last, there's a spirit-led attribute of this that you want to understand. In Galatians 3.26, So in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. Before, Jesus was talking to his disciples and to the Jews. Now he's talking through Paul to everyone, Gentiles and Jews alike. You're all children of God through faith. All of you are baptized in Christ and clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free. Thousands of slaves. Even at his time, 20, 30% of the empire was slave. All are one in Jesus Christ. There is no male or female, no slave or free. He continues, and Paul talks about it in Romans 8.14. He says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. With the Spirit, we are led into obedience. We are led into the kind of relationship where we're children who willingly obey our Father. And in Galatians 5, and 23, everybody knows this one. What is the fruit of that? What does it look like to be a child of God? For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, 
long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. There's no law because we're free to find ourselves in him and to do his will and to choose what he wants us to do joyfully. So I'm going to talk about three, uh, eight things, actually, that we're choosing when we choose to obey. Okay? This is not exhaustive. I think that there's a lot of writing. Some of you are probably appalled at how much ink there's going to be on your paper, but this is just scratching the surface about our relationship with Christ and what it means to follow him, what it means to obey. Well, let's just talk about these eight topics. So when we choose him, when we choose to obey as a servant and as a child, we're choosing truth. So some of us think that, okay, biblical worldview is a good thing. Glad I got my Bible. Um, I'm really glad I have blue letter Bible on my phone because I'm like a cripple now. I go to the computer when I'm looking up stuff. But the truth is the early church voraciously consumed scripture because they didn't have lots of copies, obviously. The means of copying was limited, and being found with scripture was a condemnable offense, much like in China or North Korea. So copies of text being hard to come by, they memorized it, and they voraciously consumed it. And further, those who were teaching from the pulpit did the same thing that we're doing now. You wonder where we got this pattern where we come up with a scripture and we come and talk about it and expound on it. It started with the synagogues in Babylon when they were in exile, the Jews were in exile. But eventually it turned into, for the Christians, it was a rereading of all the letters that are passed around between the church fathers. Sections of scripture that they had copies of, Old Testament, but these letters, the epistles, the gospels, all those were in fragments. And in fact, if you look at the early church fathers, Eusebius, Origen, Tertullian, all these other guys, when they wrote to each other, they used huge chunks of scripture to describe their positions. So much so that that's one of the ways we validate the New Testament and confirm that it is the same New Testament today that it was in 300 A.D., it's because the church fathers wrote it to each other, and we have historical documentation that says all these pieces fit into the same books that we see today. They're part of the textual reference that we, we confirm our scripture with. So the early church, they heard these things from the pulpit. They were reading letters, and they were memorizing scripture and voraciously consuming it, and they were taking a biblical worldview from that. They were dependent on it. It was reliable, it was objective, and it was unchanging. And as we know... God said through Jesus and John, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. In 2 Timothy 2, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. All these things were taught. In Jeremiah 7, a warning. This is a nation that does not obey the voice of the Lord their God or receive correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. Speaking the word, encouraging each other in the word, seeing the word taught, hearing it taught. Those are all really important parts of choosing to obey. In 2 John 1.4, John is so thankful. He says, I rejoice greatly that I found some of your children walking in truth as we receive commandment from the Father. That's what pleases God. Is and we walk in the truth and we obey. The next thing that we're choosing when we choose to obey is we're choosing love. And we talked about love, agape. It's a working love. It's an operative word. 
It's not a standing back or feeling word. And thus, feeding and caring for the poor, caring for the sick, establishing hospitals, caring for the elderly. Can you imagine what elder care was like if there were any older people in some of these days? must have been really something else. These all came from the teachings of Jesus Christ and the church fathers, and it was something they had to volitionally, they they had to desire to do it, and we have to desire to do it. We have to work up that desire in some cases. In Luke 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan, and the Samaritan, as he traveled, came to the place where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him, and he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. There's only one part of that where he says he, he had compassion on him. The rest of it was all verbs. He was obeying. He was choosing to obey. And then the prodigal son, the father, seeing his son coming up the road, runs. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, and ran to him. It was a feeling, but it had, it had feet under it. Jesus and the lepers and the prostitutes, the woman at the well, we went through all this in the last time when we talked about love. But in the end, it's a verb, and it's a choice, and agape means we go. And it comes from the greatest commandment. And again, we've gone over this last week. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law? And Jesus replied, how do you read it? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus said. Do this, and you'll live. So it's not enough to believe the command to love is real. We have to practice it. We need to obey or we're not going to be practiced. We're not going to actually bear fruit. In 1 John 5, 2, this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. So the third thing that we're choosing to do when we obey is we're choosing peace. Jesus in the Beatitudes says in chapter 5 of Matthew, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called the sons of God. And what are peacemakers? Those are people who deliberately sow peace wherever they go. They deliberately look to establish peace. It's not something where peacemakers just sort of show up and everybody calms down, although I suppose that's possible if you're really amazingly godly. But I think it has to do with actually deliberately finding ways to reconcile people. Matthew 11, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. Taking the burden off and giving it to him. Let your gentleness be known to all men in Philippians 4. In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving give your let your request be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Praying in all things provides peace that you distribute to other people, that you have a stable platform to work from when you come in contact with people who are less than stable. And prayer is an act of obedience. I didn't list it in one of our choosing to-dos, but that's obviously a requirement to have internal peace. And on in Philippians 4.8, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever is noble, whatever things are just, whatever is pure, lovely, good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, do these things, and the peace of God will be with you. Again, you have to choose that. That's not something that 
It's just going to happen to you. The fourth thing we're choosing is choosing life. We're choosing eternal life over this short life. It's obvious when I listed those ten persecutions. These were people, when they, when they were crucified, when they were torn on the racks, when they were fed to wild animals, and they were joyful about it, where was their treasure? Was it in their belongings? Was it in their families? Was it in the fact that the political stuff is going to work itself out and Diocletian is soon going to be rotting in the ground and there'll be a better ruler? No, it was simply in Jesus Christ and eternal life with him. That was the only thing they cared about. It was life with a good king in his house, with his rules, backed up with, by his promises. And that's what you dwell on. That's what we need to choose. We need to choose life and hope. Deuteronomy 30, 19. You all know this passage too. I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I have set before you life and death. I'm giving you a choice today. Which way do you want to go? Life or death? Blessing and cursing? Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live and that you may live You may love the Lord your God and you may obey his voice. The reason why you would choose life is so you can continue to obey. You can continue to love God. You can continue in a relationship with him. For he is your life and the length of your days. John 6, 63, the spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of life. The word itself gives us life. John 10.10, the thief only comes to kill and steal and destroy, but I've come that they may have life and have it to the full, abundantly. And that's abundant life as compared to the life we have now, who, although it's really good for some of us, I, I will not deny it. I enjoy the life I have. I enjoy our little farm. I love this community. I love this body of people. But the truth is, it's nothing compared to what's in heaven, guys. Nothing, nothing close to it. It's a reflection, but it's not the end. And further, who out here is ever totally satisfied? Why do you think there's advertising on the radio or in the newspaper? Jared, it's your fault. Why do you think it's there? It's because you want more. We always want more. That's the problem with being mortal. We're never satisfied because we know there's more. There's more in heaven. There's more everywhere. God has given us this desire to be filled, but on earth we can't be completely filled apart from him. So we long for heaven. We don't even know how it's coming out, but it comes out in addictions. It comes out in things we shouldn't be entering into, carnal things. But in the end, that desire will be filled in heaven if we're willing to obey him, if we're willing to love him and pursue in the steps he's given for us while we're living in this land. This land, not heaven. And as a result, number five, we're choosing contentment. It's obvious. If we are found in Christ, if we love him and we pursue life with him and we think about eternity with him, we are going to be content. It starts with the commandments. Exodus 20, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not cover your neighbor's house, you shall not cover your neighbor's wife, or his male or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or his Lexus or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Don't covet that. He had to tell them that because they were doing it. <clears throat> but here we are with Jesus Christ as our, our Lord. We have a choice to make. 
We, we know we don't have to live like that anymore. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us. So in James, James says, you desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you can't get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You don't have because you're not asking God. You're discontent, and you're not even talking to God about it, he says. It's a choice. Philippians 4, pretty much the middle section of it. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned in whatever state I am to be content, says Paul. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I've learned both to be full, to be hungry, to abound, to suffer need. Why? Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's a choice. He's choosing to be full in Jesus Christ until he gets to heaven and he can be filled with the love of God there. Luke 3, Jesus talking to soldiers. It's implied that they're Roman soldiers, by the way. These are despicable people as far as the Jews are concerned. What's he doing talking to a Roman soldier? Well, they said, what do we do? In other words, I'm a believer. Now what do I do? He's talking to a believing Roman soldier. And I'm sure the Pharisees are over there clucking their teeth like, oh, my goodness. What do we do with this guy? Jesus says, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Just do your job, man. He's going to take care of the rest. And clearly, with a Theban legion, he did take care of the rest. They were all Christians who are under the service of the emperor, who are doing service to the emperor, and he worked through them to glorify himself. In Hebrews 13, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And in 1 Timothy, Paul says, but if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. That's good. I'm good with that. Pretty simple life. And as a result of that contentment, obviously, number six, you're choosing joy. James, chapter one, Jim was preaching on this a while back. It was lovely, beautiful. Consider it joy, my, my brothers and sisters, pure joy. Not just, okay, consider it okay. He says, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Yeah, that's a good thing, he says. Enjoy that. Because blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, the person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. The crown of life is waiting for us. The satisfaction of our souls is waiting for us. That's where we're looking. Philippians 2, I implore Eodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Their names mean fragrant smell and walking together. I think you might remember that. that lesson from Pastor Steve a while back. They couldn't get along. And he says, I urge you also, true companion, to help these women who labor with me in the gospel and Clement and the rest of the workers whose names are in the book of life. And then he says, rejoice. Rejoice. You're going through a little bit of a hardship here. Rejoice in the Lord always. Ezra, when he read the law to Israel for the first time when they were rebuilding after their exile and returned into the land, caused the people to weep when they heard the law for the first time. He said, this day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. He said, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to the Lord. Do not sorrow. Why? Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
You need to rejoice that you've heard the law. You need to rejoice that things are being restored. You need to rejoice that he's at work. Rejoice greatly. And they did. And the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions to to the poor. And they rejoiced greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. So I'm just going to pass by the last couple of scriptures here, but rejoicing is not a circumstance-driven thing, clearly. If we're meant to rejoice when we're undergoing trials, then it's not something we we feel like rejoicing. We need to choose to rejoice. We need to choose joy. Number seven, choosing faithfulness. Now, what is that faithfulness based on? So faith is actually the knowledge of God through his word. If you want a simple answer, faith is knowing God. Because when you know him, you'll believe in him. But God's promises are bedrock for that obedience. Know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself, and the Lord hears when I call to him. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through a knowledge of him who called us to his glory. That's about the knowledge of God. And in Psalm 85, I will listen to what the Lord God says. He promises peace to his people, to his faithful servants, He will, but let them not turn to folly. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. John says in Revelation, <clears throat> I tell you, the devil has put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even unto the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. A promise. Peter, each of you should use whatever gifts you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So then those who suffer according to God's will will commit themselves to the faithful creator and continue to do good. It's important we understand knowing God, trusting his promises is what's going to get us to endure the suffering itself. In Revelation 17, they will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them because he's Lord of lords and King of kings. And with him will be his called, his chosen, and his faithful followers. In the end, guys, we will be with him if we are faithful and we persevere and we choose. The last thing that I want to bring up is that you're choosing power when you choose to be obedient. 2 Corinthians 12, it's not my power, he says. My, it's, it's not my power, it's his power. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will choose all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That was Paul. He goes on in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, rather as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, and hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, riots, hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, and purity, and understanding, and patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in sincere love in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and of the left. It's not in our power, and it's not with our weapons. It's with his. For the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God will make you worthy of his calling, and by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness. And every deed prompted by faith. Faith is the knowledge of God. And in Ephesians 6, 6, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. If you don't choose regularly to let God do the work, if you constantly try to do it in your own power, in your own strength, in your own wisdom, 
It is not going to glorify God, and it's ultimately not going to bear the kind of fruit he needs. We do need to choose to let God have full glory for everything that we're called to do, but we have to choose to let him do it. And part of that is just choosing to show up. And that's the last part here. I'm going to bring this baby in for a landing. So why is it that 6,700 Roman soldiers would choose to obey Christ when they knew that disobedience was going to get them killed? Maybe even their families killed if they had any. And why would believers in Carthage willingly risk infection and death for the same people who were trying to kill them days before, who were demanding their torture and their death? If you sum up everything we just brought up, both the persecutions and these different types of choices we make every day. This is the summary page. I probably should have read at the beginning because you could have napped through the rest of this, but I'm going to give you the summary page now. Obedience is a daily choice. Okay, Obedience is not something that in the moment when it really comes down to it and the chips are down and you're undergoing a lot of suffering for your faith that all of a sudden you're going to obey it. You're going to follow through and be faithful. Do you think that's a normal expectation? Would you consider running a marathon without having practiced? Would you consider starting up a chainsaw and dropping a tree if you haven't done it in about 10 years? All right, that's a bad example. You get my point. These things take practice, 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 practice. Choosing to obey is not something that is a, oh, I did it once like riding a bicycle and so now I can do it. No, when the chips are down, you're going to be confused and tormented and scared It involves a daily practice, a daily strengthening of your discipline. You have to choose daily. And Joshua, you've all heard this passage many times from the pulpit, not not the least for me. Joshua talking to the people of Israel as they're going into the land after sojourning in the desert. He's the one bringing them in. I've given you a land for which you didn't labor, cities which you didn't build, And you're going to dwell in them. You're going to eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive groves which you didn't plant. It's all given to you. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him with sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river in Ampan, Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, fine. Choose yourself this day, right now, who you're going to serve. Choose this day who you're going to serve. Whether it's the gods your father served when you're on the other side of the river, the gods of the Amorites and the land you're going to dwell, pick it. But choose this day who you're going to serve. For as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord today. Every day of your life is another chance to make a decision. It's another choice. One pastor said, it's one of the glorious things about God is we have free will because if we're still breathing, if we can still fog a mirror, there's still hope. But once... The mirror stops being fogged. Once you achieve room temperature, there's no more choices. The choices are gone. You have to choose this day who you're going to serve. And it starts in the little things in your life. It's not the big things about being persecuted today. It's about the little things. How faithful are you in love and obedience? One more thing that these these saints, as we would call them, they were just Christians. They considered the cost of obedience worth the gain. They considered the cost worth it. The cost-benefit ratio was exceedingly great. Some of you that ever borrowed money for a house realize there's a loan-to-value ratio, and 
if that loan-to-value ratio isn't right, you're not getting a loan. And as you remember in the housing bubble of 2008, a lot of people couldn't afford their houses. Loan-to-value ratios were great, but they still went under. Well, the loan-to-value ratio of serving the Lord is 9 billion percent. It's perfect. There's excess equity in this. They considered this to be the best bet of their lives, eternal glory and salvation in the presence of God for a little bit of suffering on Iraq. They would never deny him. Jim Elliott, very famous quote, he is a fool who loses what he cannot, he is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he can't ever lose. You're no fool to give up something that you can't take with you to the grave. That's not foolish. That's brilliant. Obviously, you can't take it with you. So what are you going to store up? Paul in Philippians 3, 7, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Consider it everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. In fact, it says cow manure, specifically. I consider it dung, excrement, so that I can gain Christ. I consider it all worse than garbage. That's what he thought of it. And the last thing about these, these martyrs, they considered suffering for obedience to be a small price for resurrection. I told you before, there's no bench on God's basketball team. There is no bench. Nobody sits it out. Everybody's on the first team. Everybody plays. And everybody is going to be exhausted as a result. If you've ever played football in high school and you had a small team like I did, you played kickoff, return, punt, um, offense, defense, special teams, all of it. And you came away from every game totally spent. You just totally, totally wiped out. You left it all on the field, as they say. Well, that's what it's like serving Jesus Christ. You're intended to go out there and waste yourself for his glory. That's, that's what you have in this life is to spend yourself for him. It's a small price for resurrection. Paul says in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ, yes, know the power of his resurrection and to participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. And he says, not that I've already attained this. I don't mean to say I've already figured it all out. He says, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I'm not sitting still. I have not figured it all out. I'm not eloquent of tongue, he said, but I'm going to move on with this speaking thing because that's what he called me to do. I'm going to keep doing it. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. One thing I do, forgetting what's behind, straining forward to what's ahead, and I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. Suffering is the consequence of growth, guys. It's a fact. If you're going to grow, it's going to hurt spiritually. A.W. Tozier said that he doubts that God will use a man greatly unless he's hurt him deeply. It's unfortunate, but Paul confirms this. I am going to move on. I am going to spend myself on the field. So here's my question for you. When it comes to the treasure, where you think your treasure is, what's in your wallet? What's in your wallet? Is it your earthly goods, your family, your friends, your reputation? Or is it Jesus Christ? Is it the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is it reaching out with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Where do you put your trust? 
Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that is part of that key right there. To sum it up. I'm going to ask another pressing question. Some of you have never had an experience of the Holy Spirit coming upon you. I'm, I'm not a Pentecostalist. I'm not throwing that out there. But when God equips you for service, he, he does have, there are moments where he comes upon you and he pushes boundaries that you didn't know you had. He works through you. Yes, we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, but he works on us, around us, in people. When we pray in advance of a meeting, for example, with somebody, to prepare their heart to hear the word. And sometimes when you're talking, like I am now, he's going to do the work and you have to let him do it. You have to be willing to let him do it. So when's the last time the Holy Spirit demonstrated power in your life to do stuff that you were afraid to do or you weren't sure how it was going to turn out? Ministering to the church body here, ministering to people in the community, sharing the gospel. The only way that we reproduce as Christians, it's not by having children, by the way. The only way we reproduce is by sharing the gospel. That's reproduction. So, when's the last time God put upon your heart to actually share the gospel with somebody? To actually share your story, your testimony, how you came to the Lord? Or to share what happened in somebody you know who is suffering and how God miraculously touched them? Because that's, again, what's in your wallet. Where's your treasure? Are you afraid? Are you afraid of losing it? Because it's all going to go anyway. Your reputation, your goods, your family, they're all going to go. You need to decide today, choose today, who you're going to serve. Let's go ahead and have uh, the deacons come up. We're going to prepare for communion here. I'll pray before we start distributing. But come on up, deacons, and Gretchen, if you would come up. Gretchen's going to play her lovely um, spider trap over here. It's a gorgeous instrument. It's probably more expensive than all my vehicles put together. It's not saying much. Okay, so we're going to need one more server, I think, one more deacon or a person who's willing to serve the elements. There we go. Thank you, Fran. Okay, the way we're going to do communion as we ease forward in the post-COVID or mid-COVID or anti-COVID situation here, before we used to put the elements in baskets, now we're actually going to carry the tray to you, and you can pull one out by yourself. We just ask that you don't grab the tray and lick it or rub your hands all over it, okay? So we'll do each wing separately. They'll walk down the front of the row, and you can just take it out of the the, um, tray as it goes by. The elements will be, communi- <clears throat> will be distributed by the deacons. Um, I'll lead us in taking part of the elements, as always. Right? We'll take part of the bread together, and we'll take part of the juice together. I want to mention that the Lord has only two requirements for communion. Um, in this church, the way we practice it is if you're a confessing believer in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, um, if he's your Lord and Savior, the only propitiation for your sin, then by all means, join us. We just ask that if you don't take it in an unworthy manner, as Paul says. And I'll talk about that in a bit. <clears throat> so let's go ahead and pray real quick before we take the elements. Father, thanks for being here with us today. And we lift up this communion meal, this celebration of your, your death and resurrection and the power of your blood. We lift it up to you and we thank you for it. And we ask you to be glorified in, in our participation in you. 
In Jesus' name. Okay, gentlemen.